I can't think of anyone else better to speak about creating the future than someone who has helped literally thousands of people in the world create and manifest their visions. And that's Slava Rubin, the co-founder and chief business officer of Indiegogo. Slava, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, by the way, the first time we, uh, we, you came to me about Indie, we've known each other for over a decade, and you came to me about Indiegogo, and you said, I've got this thing, and it's called crowdfunding. And I said, well, it sounds exciting. And, and you said, people put their projects online, and then other people give them money. And I said, wow, that, that's exciting. So it's like investment? And you said, nope, nope, no, they don't get any equity. And I said, then what do they get? And you said, they get a free t-shirt or they get a copy of the DVD when the project's done. And I said, well, why wouldn't I just buy my own t-shirt? Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense, Slava. And you said, I agree, but people are already doing it. And so as a result of that, of course, that was the, the birth of crowdfunding. What have you learned in the past decade uh, being a pioneer in this emergent space? I mean, it's been incredible. Uh, being an entrepreneur is an entire roller coaster on its own the ups and downs and having to persevere through that. Uh, as it relates to actually the industry, it's been enlightening to see how it's evolved. The early days where no one believed in it, then all of a sudden there- Including me at first. <laughs> you were one of many. We got rejected by 93 VCs. Although I did invest. I it's did true. Invest. We got rejected by 93 VCs in a row before anybody finally invested. So there was a lot of people that didn't believe. But it's incredible, the platform, we always thought the platform could be interesting, but we never knew what would happen on top of it. And the creativity that's happened on top of the platform has been incredible, whether it's the first ever crowdfunded baby to uh, you know, coming up with new inventions as to how to harvest honey, to activity trackers, to drones, to 3D printers. A lot of these things have been leading edge on Indiegogo before the mainstream even knew about it. It's a, an experimental space. but. When you, when you throw something out there like crowdfunded baby, you really have to explain that. So tell us about what that means. Absolutely. So this is um, you know, a few years into Indiegogo starting, and there was a couple that was in their late 20s that was statistically unable to have a child, and the odds would be very low. And the insurance companies all rejected them of being mm -hmm. able to support IVF. The hospitals in their area all rejected in them. In vitro fertilization. Exactly, to get IVF. And it's not because they could pay or not pay, it was because the odds of them actually getting a child out of that IVF were very low, so no one wanted to subsidize that risk. Wow. And the, uh, the couple ended up putting up a campaign on Indiegogo just to try to raise the money to try and fail. That's the key there. They wanted to be able to have an opportunity to fail, and no one would give them that opportunity. And they were able to raise the money on Indiegogo, and the way the story goes, it's an incredible ending. They were able to raise the money, have the IVF, and actually have a child which is you know, one of the greatest entrepreneur stories there is. So it's incredible to now see that that's actually been replicated many times on Indiegogo and other platforms, but that was the first, and it's incredible to see that you, know, you can use crowdfunding to have a child. And so, so crowdfunding has become not just funding a project, or I, I believe you started it with respect to independent films, correct? Yeah, so we try to follow the Amazon Bezos model where they start very niche in a specific area, figure out your product, figure out your product market fit, figure out the customer experience. Yeah. So they started with books and obviously have expanded. We did the same thing where we wanted to be able to fund all types of ideas, whether they be creative, cause, or entrepreneurial. And we started with film only. We thought that'd be a good vertical to begin with. And then right. after a year and a half, we expanded out to everything. Right, so speaking of everything, what are a couple of the most exciting campaigns that you've seen over the past decade? 
So that's a tricky one. We've had nearly a million, um, yeah. and it's kind of like asking for your favorite child. But uh, I definitely can can highlight a few that are interesting across the board. So there's one called Misfit Shine. So Misfit um, was one of the early activity trackers. Now many people use their phone for tracking activity, or they have something on their wrist that is tracking activity. So this was started on Indiegogo already many years ago. They were able to raise around a million dollars, which back when a million dollars on a crowdfunding campaign was super exciting. And, and this is back before wearables were really a thing. Absolutely, we're talking like uh, 12, 2012. Yeah. And uh, it was just incredible to see how the entrepreneurs were able to learn and get feedback. They learned that black was a color the, the market wanted when they thought they would never actually be selling black because actually black would cost a lot more than a regular color, which mm. we don't need to get to, into the technical details, but the entrepreneur actually learned on Indiegogo, people are willing to pay more for black versus mm -hmm. another color. And not just because they said they would pay more, but because they actually did pay more. They actually voted with their dollars, which I believe is the ultimate vote. A lot of people will give you their opinions, but voting with your dollars, really powerful. So Misfit Shine is a great example. That company goes on to hire many people, have a great business, and sell their company for around $300 million to Fossil. So a great kind of alumni, where are they now, story. Another one is uh, Flowhive. So Flowhive is a, a new invention as to how to harvest honey. So the actual white box mm. where you have the uh, folks come in in their white suits and smoke out the bees, that is technology that goes back to the mid-1800s. And it was an incredible invention when that came out. But that's the same technology that's now been used for the last 150 plus years. So this father-son combo said, why is it that we need to annoy the bees? Why is it that we need to get stung? Why not have honey on tap like you have beer on tap? Mm -hmm. So they created this hive where they create a cell structure inside and the bees go in, fill the cell with honey, they turn a crank and then the cell moves so then gravity pulls the honey down. It pools together. You put the cell back together with a crank, and then the bee goes into the cell and says, I thought I filled this with honey. I'm fill it again. And I'll just fill it again. <laughs> now, you never need to bother the bee. You just turn the tap open, and now with gravity, the honey comes out. This campaign, in a number of weeks, raises over $13 million. It's the campaign that's been funded by the most countries ever in the world by any campaign. 167 countries funded this. The wow. reason I believe it was so uh, ubiquitous is because people understand honey and they understand that you know you need bees and all that good stuff but as opposed to maybe a drone which might not resonate in every single country. But we've also had like I mentioned the first ever crowdfunded baby or right now there's a really interesting project that hopefully will ship soon called Pilot. So Pilot is like straight out of uh, science fiction where you'll have earbuds in your ears and you have an app connected to your phone. Yeah. And between the two, you'll be able to have language translation from one to the other in your ears instantaneously through the cloud. So you'll be speaking English. I only understand French. It'll translate it into French right into my ears. So this was funded on Indiegogo for multi-million dollars and they'll hopefully be shipping in 2018. So you're building the Tower of Babel. That last time we did that didn't turn out very well, Slava. You, you, you know about that story, right? Well, I don't build these things. We yeah. create the platform. And the uh, you're just the banker. You're just the <laughs> banker. I get it, okay. Well, even better, the banker decides yes or no. We allow the crowd to decide. So that's the idea yeah. is to eliminate the gatekeepers. Yeah. And every idea deserves the opportunity to fail which is to actually have the opportunity to learn from the crowd that this is a good idea or a bad idea with their votes of dollars 
is something that everyone deserves. That doesn't mean they will succeed and get all the money. Yeah. Um, but being able to get that opportunity is like you say, what bankers or VCs or grant applications will never give you a chance because they right. say no. They stamp you no, and that's it. And that, that's something close to your heart, given how Indiegogo started. But one of the things that's exciting to me about the crowdfunding movement is that you can be in Australia, you can be in Azerbaijan, you can be all over the world, and Indiegogo supports this in more countries than anybody else, and you can seek capital from anywhere in the world. And that really is transformative. That's something that when you and I were kids that literally did not exist. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, when you think of access to capital, you think about going to your local bank, which is several blocks or miles away from you, and hopefully they will give you the money. The interesting thing on Indiegogo now, if you hit your funding target, it is actually very rare that if you've not been funded from multiple countries. Wow. So it's not the norm to have it always in one country and maybe you get it from another. It's rare that you don't get it from multiple countries, nevertheless, 10 countries. So yes, it's very global and the idea of you have this one campaign centralized where all the social yeah. and all the media is coming to one place that yes, it, it becomes global and sometimes there's a hit like the Flowhive which has 167 countries. So the pools of capital are shifting around, they're becoming connected around the world. Uh, the ideas, the concepts, the entrepreneurs, the, the, the pools of capital and not just from banks or VCs, from individuals who are excited about something that someone might be trying to do. So let's, let's expand this to uh, corporations and uh, venture capitalists and large corporations are using crowdfunding in ways that many people aren't aware of. What's going on there? Yeah, so what happened in the early days is Indiegogo was the last means of trying to get money. If I couldn't get it anywhere, maybe I would use Indiegogo. Fast forward to 2010, people are like, yeah, I'm going to try doing Indiegogo, I get a little promotion. Fast forward to 2012, now you have VC funded companies are actually using Indiegogo because it's a great method of validation, getting marketing, promotion, capturing customer information. Fast forward another year or two, you now have large enterprises that are starting to explore using similar techniques. You start having Google and Philips coming to Indiegogo to want to do some of these validation campaigns. So now um, we have an entire enterprise business where we have dozens of the largest Fortune 500 companies that are coming to us to use the similar techniques. And they basically summarize into two things, either validating or sourcing innovation. Uh, so validating is where the enterprise actually has the idea in-house, it's sitting in the R&D group, and for some reason it's not able to go through the levels of bureaucracy and all those right. filters to be able to make it out into the market. And sourcing is they have the thesis of what they're trying to accomplish, but they don't have the actual ideas. So a great example as a case study for validation is with GE Appliance. They actually wanted to, they've been sitting on this research for 20 years, which is some people like chewable ice. So typical mm -hmm. ice is dense rectangular ice that's hard to chew. And then chewable ice is porous spherical ice that's very easy on the bite. Because we always tell our kids not to chew their ice for some reason, like your teeth are gonna fall out. Because or... it's dense and yeah. hard, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but they've been sitting on this research that there's a good segment of the market that likes chewable ice. But for 20 years in the executive team meetings, for channel conflict, for sales confusion, for cannibalism, for not wanting to mess up on innovation, they said, don't touch my $7 billion refrigerator line. Right. So finally, one day, they were able to take the uh, idea and just put it on Indiegogo as a side concept. Mm -hmm. And instead of creating an entire refrigerator, they created a countertop device just to prove the idea, mm -hmm. which is, will people actually fund this countertop device that makes chewable ice? The, the only thing this thing would do is make ice I can chew. Exactly. 
Okay, all right. And Makes no sense. And before but, you knew it, within a number of weeks, they were able to sell millions of dollars of units. Now, millions of dollars to G Appliance is not the end of the world, but this became a massive media story. Mm -hmm. Customers started walking into the stores where they can buy G refrigerators and saying, I'd like the refrigerator with a chewable ice option. Right. And then the salesperson will say, I don't have that. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Then the customer will walk out and the salesperson will get frustrated, talk to the regional rep, talk to the East Coast rep, talk to the head Why of sales. Why don't we have this? Why don't we have this? Right. Which right. then changed the entire viewpoint. And now GE Appliance will eventually be coming out with chewable ice as an option, all because of this little Indiegogo campaign. And now we do this with dozens of companies. Now on sourcing, that's where the company has the thesis, but not the ideas. So Motorola is a great example. Motorola right now is trying to advance forward with new innovation, which is instead of extending the phone with another app, which is software, try to extend the phone with a hardware module, right? So think about mm -hmm. it as like a pieces of a phone coming together so you can add new pieces. So let's say we had a projector. High quality camera, projector, whatever exactly. it to be. Uh, some Microwave oven. Perfect. Microwave yeah. oven might be tricky. Okay. Well, but Motorola could have come out with all those ideas. They call it the Moto Z, the Moto Mod. A mod is what they call it. Mm -hmm. So they could have come out with all the mods on their own. Here are the 10 mods. Right. But instead, they went to the crowd and worked with Indiegogo to actually get the ideas to come in-house. And now you're seeing commercials about all this on TV, and it's just great use of Indiegogo in the crowd and the community and early adopters to be able to figure out how and, to innovate. And for a corporation, it's... And it's an extraordinarily low-cost way to gather that kind, of, those kind of data. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's not surprising to me that GE was early on this because I remember maybe four or five years ago. Later today, we're talking with Beth Comstock, the vice chair of GE. She was the chief marketing officer at the time, and she was talking about crowdfunding and Indiegogo and trying to do something to validate product and that sort of thing. So it's exciting to see this come to fruition. Um, so. What about equity-based crowdfunding? This is something you've been a big proponent of. You've been in some fabulous, we've been in some fabulous arguments together with others about the pros and cons of equity-based crowdfunding. What do you see happening since the JOBS Act, since this has just started to uh, proliferate in the market? Yeah, so just as backup, when the Securities Act of 1933 came out, what happened was the public was not able to access private deals. The only way they'd be able to invest in something is if it IPO'd. So Initial it, public offering it, went public. Exactly. And the whole idea was before that, there was a lot of scammers that went door to door trying to sell different people some oil in Oklahoma when really there was no oil in Oklahoma. So then the right. government came together and said, we need to create the Securities Act of 1933, the SEC, we need to regulate this. Which is all fine and good, but what's happened is a lot of people want to have access to these different investment opportunities that are around their neighbors or locals or their friends. Right. 98.5% of Americans are not accredited investors, meaning that they don't have a $250,000 salary or over a million dollars in net worth. So right. they would not be able to access these private deals. So they have to wait for it to go public, which is a little unfair because then they get the deal much later. Right. So we were able to get the momentum starting in 2008 to actually then get the Jobs Act signed, which as part of that created equity crowdfunding. It took four years up to 2016 before it finally went live because then the SEC and FINRA finally approved it. And now at Indiegogo, we've had our product open for people to invest into companies for around nine months. It's really exciting. Every company we've put up, which is over 20, has already hit its minimum target. 
We've already done millions of dollars. Every company has hit its minimum target for equity-based crowdfunding on Indiegogo. On Indiegogo. We're the only platform that has 100% so far. I don't know that we'll keep 100%, yeah. but so far it's going great. Yeah. And Do you play a role in curating the organizations that go, or, or is this a completely open platform like uh, the rest of GoGo? So it's a great question. Indiegogo, the core platform, is completely open. Right. But as part of the regulatory requirements, you can have, you cannot have an open platform. So diligence is required. So yes, we absolutely do diligence, and we are reviewing the companies, and we put up a particular set of companies. But we try to be as open as possible, mm. um, and we've done it across a wide range of types of companies: movies, uh, pizza shops, coffee shops, hardware, internet companies, uh, devices. So all types of a gaming company. So all type distilleries all types of different companies and all of them so far have reached their minimum target which is great and i think it's very early see if we were talking about crowdfunding in 2008 right now about indiegogo not many people would understand it or believe in it it right. took a few years before people leaned in at all nevertheless that it became mainstream yeah. so in comparison equity crowdfunding it's very nascent we're right. about to turn 10 years old for, for the core business i think when equity crowdfunding turns 10 years old it's going to be a game changer in America and potentially the world. So let's shift to another version of crowdfunding, the initial coin offering or the ICO. That's taken the world by storm in less than a year. Uh, it started uh, last year, was uh, a little bit of it going on, and, and so far we've, we've neared a billion dollars raised through various tokenization efforts. It's not clear exactly what this is yet. To what extent it's like an IPO that is unregulated. To what, uh, the SEC has just weighed in and uh, is starting to try and figure out what to do. The Chinese government has, of course, put the hammer down on it. What are your thoughts about ICOs and where those might be going? I think that access to capital across the world is a massive issue and will probably be an issue for a very long time. So credit cards were an interesting innovation 50 years ago. I think Indiegogo, when we launched in 2008, that was an interesting innovation. Equity crowdfunding, interesting innovation. And I see crypto and the ICOs and how they're launching is just another interesting innovation as to how access to capital is getting democratized. I see this one not being the last. There'll probably be future innovations as well. So I'm very supportive of any innovations that disrupt access to capital and the bottlenecks that we have right now with our current business models. As it relates to specifically ICOs, um, I think it is in a hype cycle right now. Mm -hmm. I think that is partially deserved and partially probably misunderstood. Um, the idea of being able to raise that money is exciting. I think it is navigating a path which is not as regulated for the moment. I do think they will become the, the landing place as to how regulated and under which regulations it will be regulated. Currently, the discussions are around, are they officially securities right. or are they not, which is a utility. I think the definitions and the arguments and lawyers will make a lot of money navigating these deals around uh, utility versus security. Um, I don't know if we want to get into all those details on exactly this discussion right now, but it really depends on the type of company, how connected are they to the infrastructure of crypto versus how much are they trying to take advantage of the ICO framework for the sake of yeah. raising money. So if it looks like a duck, it smells like a duck, it probably will be a security. A yeah. um, but if you're actually able to improve and participate in the crypto ecosystem and the protocols, which most of the companies in general are not able to, 
uh, because they don't actually have the white papers and the technological know-how to participate in that. They, uh, will, those will be, uh, sorry, these will be securities and these will try to be able to be utilities, which those raising as utilities will be very interesting because they'll be outside a lot of the regulatory frameworks that right. currently exist. And in those cases, there aren't really regulatory frameworks that are even relevant. And so there'll be new regulatory regimes that are created over the next decade in that respect. I wouldn't even say the next decade. I think it's already coming together. Um, I'd be surprised if by the end of the decade, it's already not quite clear, if not within two years. How these are classified and, and what we should be or not be doing with them. Yeah. But do you see ICOs as competition for equity-based traditional uh, it seems stupid to even say traditional equity-based crowdfunding because it's only a couple, it's only a year old. But do you see it as a competitor, or a complement, or neither? I mean, in its essence, it's using the crowd to fund a new business. Right. So that is what Indiegogo does. So yes, I would call it competition, uh, but not in the way that it's black and white, winning or losing. I also consider you know, VC's competition or credit cards competition. Interesting. I look at it and banks are definitely competition with their small business loans, but those don't use business models which leverage the crowd while ICOs often do. Um, so it's just a matter of access to capital is what we're trying to solve. But do I look at it as winner and loser? No, I look at this as all innovations that are improving the access to capital market, which will get more money into entrepreneurs and if you can raise the odds of any one entrepreneur being able to be successful, I think you raise the odds of humanity getting improved. So I'm super pro any innovation which improves access to capital because I'm very pro the entrepreneur. You know, reflecting, I've reflected on this many times. When I graduated undergrad in 1991, I've always loved entrepreneurship and been excited by the notions of trying to create a vision and taking it out to market. And I've been involved in and some of those activities myself. It was very difficult to become an entrepreneur in 1991. Uh, it was literally, you were out in the wilderness by yourself. Unless you were in Silicon Valley, maybe Boston, uh, in the middle of the country, there wasn't much going on. Today, even in Chicago, where I'm from, you've got 1871, you've got uh, hundreds of entrepreneurs hanging out with funders and mentors. The big corporations are trying desperately to figure out how to, how to engage. This is a completely different world, and what you've done has, has really helped to catalyze that. So let's shift from funding and Indiegogo yep. to the future in general. Uh, being human, we're trying to understand how technology, uh, behaviors, crowdfunding, the whole gamut might change the experience of being human in that future. What most concerns you about the range of technology, the changes in society, et cetera, going forward? What most concerns you? I'm less concerned about the logical arguments because I believe there's going to be a lot of data and information to help support the decision making. But what does concern me is the ideological divides where people put themselves on opposite sides of the room. I think it's very emotional and when you have emotion it's hard to really find a collaborative solution. And people seek the data to support the perspective they have. I, I won't mention any names, but recently there have been some people suggesting very directly that Hurricane Irma is a liberal conspiracy. I consider myself a centrist. I try and take in all the data and understand why people have a perspective. There are going to be a lot of people in Florida who don't agree that this was simply a liberal conspiracy. Uh, and so we're already seeing this, this percolating in, in a world of expanding transparency and access to data and information and the ability to share perspectives. 
given that very real concern, what can we do about it? How do we protect society, not just ourselves, but society? I think it's a very simple concept, but I think the more time people from opposite point of views share actual time with each other, uh, whether it's just online, but even better is in person, I think really uh, takes away the demonization of the other side because often they're able to have at least a dialogue, not agree, but a dialogue. And that alone, I think, is super valuable. The ideological divide is so significant that often the two sides will not meet. Right. They will just talk about how much they don't like the other side. And I'm not even referring to anything specific right now with the topic. Uh, I just think that that's the issue of what I'm concerned about as my child grows up, um, how the world will look like. But I think as a positive, you know, using better transportation means, using better communication means, using better access to information, I think we'll be able to get those individuals together much more often, uh, sooner, quicker. So I think we will make that uh, better. So we need an Indiegogo-like, not just crowdfunding, but human connecting platform across lines. Yeah, I mean, one can argue that you know, Facebook is already doing some of this. Right, but I'm. Although people can edit out the people who yeah, sure. make comments that they exactly. don't like. And no, no, and there's obviously I don't have the perfect product solution, and I'm not saying this is one internet site. I'm right. saying the combination of you know being able to fly to Africa instead of in ten hours in one hour, right? right. So you could be on the ground, being able to uh, get on a conference call that works perfectly and really be connected there really right away which maybe that's actually holograms or maybe you're actually present. So I don't know what the technology is going to right. be. Um, maybe being able to right away see as an information background that this person actually did all these great deeds and they're actually not a bad person. Uh, I don't know what the platform is or what the technology is. I'm saying that the world is moving towards a place that it is easier to connect. And the only reason they won't is because of the ideological divides. So I, that's what my concern is. Yeah. That said, I'm an optimist, and I think that the advancements will beat the ideological divides. Uh, so I'm pro, I'm supportive, and I'm optimistic, but that's my concern. And we almost have to go through that evolution because people are going to be trying new things around the world, whether we like it or not. Um, so you're an optimist. I, 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 tend to, uh, I tend to be an optimist as well. What do you see 20 years from now for your son? Your, your son was born a year ago? He's almost two. Almost two. Time flies. Time does so fly. So 20 years from now, he's in college or doing whatever people do 20 years from now. What are you most excited about for him? So 20 years from now, uh, he'll be 22. He, I doubt he'll be in college. That's my opinion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he might have just finished college, but I doubt he'll still be there at 22. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a wild world out there. I think that... Um, I think that it's uh, hard to predict what's going to happen 20 years out, but it's amazing how quickly things change just three or five years out. Mm. So I think we're going to go through probably a minimum of two, if not three major transformational changes right. in the next 20 years. And when I say a transformational change, people probably forget that it was just a little while ago that we went through the social media right. world. It wasn't that long ago. There was no, no social media de a decade ago. Maybe there was Friendster. I, mean, I, you're, I think I still have a Friendster I mean, we're account. about to have sure. like the 10-year anniversary <laughs> of the iPhone. Yeah. That's 10 years ago. It's not right. that long ago. Right. 
right? I mean, if you look back 20 years ago, we're barely talking, I mean, the internet practically didn't exist in terms of like Amazon. And Apple was right? definitely going to go out of business Yeah, 20 so years I mean, ago. you're asking me yeah. 20 years forward from here, I'm we're definitely gonna have minimum two, potentially three major technological transformations uh, in terms of, I hope we make massive advancements in terms of health and being able to use the DNA sequencing and more kind of customized healthcare to be able to improve people's lives. I think that um, hopefully by then we'll really have limited the number of people that are, are you know, um, starving for food because we're able to create the proper methodologies in terms of growing and distributing the food because of how we're able to advance productivity related uh, to that across the world. I think that, um, you know, I think it will be a much, uh, how should I say, it's easier life to live in, mm. but more complicated. What do you mean? Easier life to live in, but um, more complicated. Like, <clears throat> for example, like right now, I still need to check on my toast as to whether or not, you know, it's going to burn. Hopefully it popped out at the right time. But there's obviously going to be sensors that are connected to temperature, mm. and the toast is going to come out exactly perfect. So convenience will be far beyond. Yeah, yeah, what exactly. We can My see steak today. will be exactly the temperature that I want, and seared exactly how I want it. So that will be like an easier life to live in. And you know, my Siri or my Alexa or whatever, I'll just like right. say order Chinese food, and it's like super basic, right? But it'll be a more complicated in terms of what do you want to do with your privacy? What do you want to do with your own data? Yeah. Like, what are the right decisions to make or not make? Because information will be ubiquitous, but it's decision-making that will be hard. Uh, there'll be a lot of moral questions and ethical questions that we'll be navigating, not only as, like, what is the government going to decide or what is some taxi company going to decide? It's what am I going to decide as to how I want to make my child or not make my child or whether no. I want to, like... So, I mean, that's what I mean by complicated. Um, so a lot yeah. more onus on the individual to take responsibility for some of these questions about privacy and sharing and, and I, I would like to think that 20 years from now um i don't know if this will be true globally because it'll take a long time to transition globally but probably within the u.s a lot of these manual re routine jobs will probably become automated um which i say is convenience because you won't have to spend your day quote-unquote hammering, right, because mm -hmm. that's less laborious. Mm -hmm. uh, but it'll be more complicated because what will you be doing? Right. Yeah, right? So, that's wanna... what, so that's what I mean by the world would become much more convenient uh, and easy in terms of your day-to-day, -day, uh, but more complicated holistically as to where you fit and navigate uh, your place in the world right. and what you want to do with yourself. The more technology is able to do nearly anything the more the question for us as humans is, what should we do? Absolutely. And why? Absolutely. One of the um, missing skill sets in our educational yeah. model, I feel like we're taught a lot about uh, quote unquote reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, but the decision making, which I actually consider entrepreneurship, the approach as to how to navigate solutions, being willing to fail, being willing to be creative, is in my opinion as part of our educational process from being a child to then graduating college, a missing element. We too often focus on success, and what I mean by that is getting a 99 getting on a test right. yep. that had the right uh, formulas or remembering, memorizing the right answers, but it doesn't have this open-ended, 
I don't know what the answer is, but I want to see how you navigate it. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not even sure I know what I should be doing. How do we even figure that out? We don't teach children, we don't teach ourselves how to figure out what, it's, what to spend your time on. So it's decision making, but it's even more than decision making because I don't even know what I should be making a decision about. Well, in my opinion, when you know my son is now uh, just under two, but I, I, when a child is young, you know, two, three, four, five, six, still, still even seven, eight, anything is possible. They're not limited in their minds as to what can be done or cannot be done. So they use their creative energies to navigate, this is what I want to do right now, and then it can explore into an interesting place. And similarly, uh, when you play with Legos, um, there's the doctor Lego and the lawyer Lego, but there's not the entrepreneur Lego. But little kids, they're great entrepreneurs. They're just navigating and figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. But then we get into our school system, which is very much a framework that has to navigate towards success. And anything that doesn't look like an A is really bad. So you start getting away from creativity sometimes and you start yeah. taking away from risk because you want to still follow that A success line. Yeah. And then that leads you right into graduation and you graduate college. And the last thing you're going to want to do is become an entrepreneur or try to figure out these right. questions as to what am I going to do with myself or how am I going to do problem solving. As Reid Hoffman likes to say, it's like jumping off a cliff and trying to make the parachute on the way down. Most people don't want to do that. They yeah. want to already know. It's not an attractive proposition. It, right. They want to know that they learned the alphabet first, then they learn how to say words, then spell. and, and in, do fact, in fact, a, a leader just a couple of months ago said to me, uh, we're willing to do anything at this company as long as it's all planned out in advance. <laughs> Which I, I didn't even, I, basically the meeting was over at that point. I, there's nothing I could do to help them. So... Um, uh, Slava, you, you're looking at the future, you're building the future, you're helping others build the future. Three words to describe your feeling about the future of humanity and hyphens are acceptable. My three words would be optimistic, entrepreneurial, and a roller coaster. Nice, so an optimistic entrepreneurial roller coaster defines the future in the from the perspective of Slava Rubin. Uh, Slava, anything is possible, and as a result of Indiegogo, it's possible for literally millions of people around the world that couldn't have even imagined before uh, what they might be able to accomplish in this future that is perhaps easier, more convenient, but at the same time, much more complicated for all of us. Uh, I agree that one of the keys will be spending real human time together, and I'm glad that you and I had the opportunity again today to do so. Thanks so much. Thank you. Right.